Welcome listeners to the First Things Podcast, the editor's desk. This is Rusty Reno, and I am at my desk, the editor's desk. And I have with me today Dana Joya, author of Christianity and Poetry in the August-September issue. And Dana is former poet laureate of California and author of a great deal of poetry and the books Can Poetry Matter and The Catholic Writer Today, which was a famous article at First Things. Um, number of years ago. But welcome, Dana, to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So Christianity and poetry. I mean, I was just so delighted when the piece came came in. Uh, so I guess the place to start here is why do we discount, because there's, a, there's an element of urgency in the piece. So why do we discount the role of poetry in our religious lives? I believe that, especially since Vatican II in the Catholic Church, but in a larger sense in the 20th century across all Christianity, we've had the prosaification of (laughs) of language. Uh, People no longer understand the notion of sacred language and the levels of sacred language. Uh, My essay, I think, is overwhelmingly just basic. I make a few fundamental observations about how language works and how scripture works. These are things that, you know, everybody should be obvious, uh, you know, find obvious, but they've been forgotten really, certainly in the last, you know, 60, 70 years, and and perhaps since, you know, across the whole 20th century. Um, I start off with a a basic notion, and and actually I'm going to back one step behind the essay. Uh, Human language is human speech. We talk to each other. That's what language is. Over the course of civilization, we've found two basic ways of turning that speech into literature. One is called prose. One is called verse. Uh, They have very different human social and cultural functions. Verse, which is to say poetry, is the more ancient. Before writing was ever invented, people developed poetry as a way of remembering those things that were so important that a people could not forget. Think of this in in the, the history of the Jewish people, and the importance of it becomes very obvious. In order to survive, and could we even uh, say this is true of Catholics today, Christians today, in order to survive, we have to remember who we are, where we come from, and where we're going. And the most powerful way of doing that is in poetry and in symbols. The cross as a symbol is worth 100,000 volumes of theology. Uh, The Psalms uh, are uh, essentially more important, more revelatory than the Summa Theologica. And I say that as a great admirer of Aquinas. Mm -hmm. And so I really start the piece with a really, duh, dumb question, which is, why is there so much poetry in the Bible? Uh, And I make the observation that you really can't be an alert Christian unless you can deal with poetry, because otherwise you're forced into a rather absurd situation. Uh, you'll say, well, I'm not going to read one-third of the Bible. Uh, or uh, go even further, well, you know, what was God thinking when he inspired 
one third of the Bible to be in verse. So you have to come up with the notion that God was an extremely poor editor. Uh, and he should have, you know, stated things in a clearer way, as Randall Jarrell said, in prose that dogs and cats can understand. And so I simply ask the obvious question, you know, what role, what purpose does poetry serve in the Bible? And that's what generates this long essay. You observe that it's a kind of show it, don't say it, I guess, concept of joy, gratitude, awe, wonder. You have to express that or even to ev evoke it. Is not, you can't just say, you know, be joyful. Isn't it wonderful? You have to somehow use language to give that same sense to the reader. Um, I mean, I guess I was struck, yeah, we, we got to remember who we are. And of course, you can't remember things unless they're memorably put. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, I guess in an oral culture, it's, it's inevitable that there would be various verbal, various ver ways to use words in ways that are, that make it stick uh, in your mind. But so why, what do you think is, accounts for the insistent flattening of language that well, we have both in liturgy and in Bible translations? The nature of poetic language is that it embodies emotional, physical, intuitive, and imaginative meanings. So if I give you a poem, you cannot control all of its meanings. It comes to you, and that's why people respond to it so deeply, is that, you know, you'll get a poem and three different people will, uh, will give you three different interpretations, all of which are valid often, because it touches some different part of their experience. Uh, if you're a biblical scholar, uh, your whole career is about defining and narrowing meaning. You want uh, the meaning to become more and more specific. Now, when the Bible began to be retranslated, in the 20th century by various people. Um, and, and I think the central, you know, the central uh, unfortunate episode was this, was the liturgical reforms made by Vatican II, uh, which I think in both Latin and English weakened our liturgical language. But it's, it's happening elsewhere, is that we had these translations that were flat-footed in their literalism. You know, and so I can say, Job, uh, can you get a whale with your fishing pole? Okay, and we, we kind of get what he's saying. But he goes, when God says, canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? It suddenly, it, it becomes much more vivid. You, and part of the vividness is not even in the meaning. It's in the physical rhythm. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? It's Anhook in the uh, in, in King James, but I don't think that they pronounce that because they would have pronounced it Anhook. And so you f you feel a rhythm, and what's the rhythm? The rhythm is your heartbeat. And so people feel and physically experience poetry, and a an academic translator of the Bible doesn't necessarily think in that. So one of the, the things that I immediately notice in most modern translations of the Bible is that they're rhythmically deaf. Mm -hmm. you know, they've got meaning there, a very clear meaning, but they've robbed it of its music, its associations, and most importantly, its physicality. Uh, 
a lot of Christians are very embarrassed that they have bodies. Their bodies get <laughs> them in the tru- into trouble. You know, they can't control their, their eating. They can't control their sexual appetite. They, you know, they can't uh, control their, you know, their need for, you know, for, you know, for just sitting around on their behinds. So Christians, and it's been true since the beginning, have looked on their body as a kind of an impediment uh, to salvation, an impediment to enlightenment. And the early battles of the church were very fundamental. Uh, once again, they said, well, look, you know, how, you know, is God stupid? Did God give us a body just so we could get into trouble? Early Christianity said, no, we are beings with a, both a body and a soul. And it's that combination which makes us human. That was always understood in Christian art. You know, Christian art gave embodied images. The music speaks to our senses. The poetry speaks to our senses. Contemporary Christian liturgy, especially uh, Catholic liturgy, is disembodied. It, it's written to give us literal meaning in a tone-deaf manner. You know, and that is really a modern problem. That was never true before the 20th century, and never truer yeah. than the 21st. Yeah, I mean, a, a sacrament, a, t- a technical definition of a sacrament is that it, it affects the thing it signifies. And so the water of baptism both signifies rebirth, but it also affects rebirth. And I always think of poetry in is analogous is that poetry embodies what it expresses exactly. well the thing is <laughs> would so we would we accept the baptism tell you things you yeah. experience it verbally as well as intellectually yeah would we accept a baptism which dispensed with the water would we accept the eucharist which we didn't eat uh and say well they're just merely symbolic and you can see the meaning of the eucharist here so just sit you know you know sit in your uh uh, you know, in, in your pews and 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 uh, nod to the altar, and so. But there's something terribly, terribly primitive about you know pouring water and oil on a newborn kid. Uh, something very primitive. Every you know time I go to mass, about kneeling at uh, in front of the altar and accepting bread and wine from the priest. I mean, you can't get more basically physical and human than that. And what that suggests is that at the very heart of Christianity, of Christian worship, Christian ritual, is the insistence that we involve our bodies and not just our minds. One of my pet peeves is the elimination of the the and thou. It, It seems almost impossible to avoid in the 20th century, but... From a poetic standpoint, you is a really a, it's a tough word to work with poetically, as opposed to thou. I grew up in Anglican, and I, I still remember the confession of sin that um, ends with a petition, spare thou those who confess their faults, restore thou those who are penitent. And you just, the the TH dip, diphthong has a just more um, poetic potential than you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's also if you go back to the history of English, you is what you use with strangers. Thou, uh, thy, thine is what you use with in the family. 
So when we say, you yes. know, uh, you know, it's an intimate to yeah, address. How would be thy name? We're speaking to God as if he were indeed our father. I mean, that's when I, you know, uh, I tried to show that in, some, in the quotations that I had from, from, you know, the King James Version, or in one case, from the Book of Common Prayer. These are, not, these are uh, uh, essentially late Renaissance English Protestant translations, but they have, you know, the, the Magnificat in the, the Book of Common Prayer is magnificent. The Magnificat in these current Bibles is rather pedestrian. And so uh, the, the most important idea that I had in this piece and this is the reason that I wrote the piece. I don't know if I, I don't know if I told you the story about how this piece came to be, but early in the year I was asked to speak at the Norbertine Abbey, St. Michael's Abbey, in Silverado, California. I mean, what an exemplary seminary this is! I mean, um, the seminarians, the faculty, everything about it is is as good as can be. And I was very, you know, I've been very impressed by the Norbertines, uh, and so I went there and the. Uh, Fieldstead Foundation had endowed a new library for them, this magnificent you know, library that's in the middle, and also had given them two huge collections of patristic literature. So they have this wonderful, wonderful library there. And they asked me uh, and, uh, to give a talk you know, about this. And so I began to talk about poetry uh, in this. And when I was writing my notes, I noticed something that I'd never really thought about. This is a moment that all Christians know. It's called the visitation. There's thousands of paintings of it. Uh, and it's where, this is the moment where Mary, who has been told by God via the angel, you know, angel Gabriel, that she will be the mother of the Messiah. Indeed, that she's already the mother of the Messiah because at the moment of the, of the announce, of the annunciation, you know, uh, Christ, you know, Christ is conceived in his human form. And she goes and visits uh, Elizabeth, and when she wants to give the news. Now, this is the moment. This is what I had not really thought about. The first time that Jesus' incarnation, in which the redemption is articulated to the world, not through the mystery of the Annunciation, but to another human being, Mary chooses to give the news as a poem, she could just say, guess what? An angel came uh, uh, yesterday and told me I'd be the mother of the Redeemer, and this is an incredible honor, and he's going to save Israel, and it fulfills the, 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 uh, the prophecies to Abraham, and he's going to do a lot of good stuff because God is basically good. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's the prosaic news, but what she does is express it in a weird way in terms of subjective emotion. My soul doth magnify uh, the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. <clears throat> For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him. Throughout all the generations, he hath shewed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat. He hath exalted the humble and the meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and he hath 
the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever. Now, if, now if people need a single inspirational verse from the Bible today, or at least people involved in culture and education, I would suggest the verse, He hath showed strength with his arm, he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. I, I agree. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I would ponder these formulations like in the imagination of their hearts. That's not the way you normally speak. And what does that really refer to? It's a very rich, on the one hand, right, our hearts have an imagination. It's a, if you're eight or nine years old and you're, it's a, it's an opening up a whole world of what, you know, what language can do, what, what our, what our souls are actually like. This, uh, there are many, there are many mansions, so to speak, within one's own uh, heart. Well, there's an even better translation of that verse. I don't like the translation of the rest of the of the poem. It's another Renaissance translation, which is, "He hath scattered the proud in the conceit of their hearts." And I think right. what he's talking about are those people, and we deal with them that are so convinced by their own ideas, uh, you know that. You know that when they they condescend to the religious uh, uh, truths, they condescend to the very to the religious themselves, uh, and they you know they're lost in the conceit of their heart, in the conceit of their imagination. Right. And so, right. Uh, and it, because who does he does God uh, pull from his? You know, does he scatter? And he scatters the proud. You know, and we know that of all the seven deadly sins. Pride is the worst. You know, you don't realize this as a kid because you think that and all the other ones are. But the older you get, the more you understand this, that pride is the gatekeeper to all the sins because pride allows you to sin and take, you know, pride in the fact, you know, in a sense to turn yourself into a god, into the arbiter of things. So anyway, I, I think that the Magnificat, and this is true of all of these great, uh, poems in the in the Bible, they're they're like uh, batteries of spiritual and intellectual mm. and human energy, and you can tap into them again and again and again, uh, you know, it, it, as a way of revelation. Every time I read that, there's a different part of it that, that moves me. But I'll hear a, a contemporary translation, and none of it moves me. Why? Mm. Is it because I, I, I'm in, caught in the conceit of my heart and in the imagination of my heart? No, it's because I got ears. You know, I have ears and the language is dead. You know, see, one of the, the single biggest problem of, of liturgy, of apologetics, of preaching, of evangelization, this biggest single problem is that we speak in platitudes and cliches. Now, yes. I, I can't tell you how many times I was stopped on a campus in the 70s uh, by a, a, a person who said, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Uh, personal Lord and Savior. Well, okay. In California, we use an abbreviated version. Of it. And, and <laughs> now, I have to say that uh, I probably didn't do a very good job of it, but yeah, I had accepted Christ as my Savior. But as soon as they said that, I just said, oh, God, you know. These are people that are just mouthing slogans. And what, you know, what we need to find 
is a way in which we can express the the authenticity of our own belief and acknowledge the complex authenticity of these other people, which means that every piece of language needs to be crafted for the occasion. It needs to be not just about me, but it needs to acknowledge the other person as a feeling, uh, thinking, sweating, hungry, tired, overworked, confused human being. That's what great language does. You know, that's why you have language that can go from the, the exalted to the humble in the same piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, 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 it uh, invites and rewards the imagination, the emotions, the experience of other people. And I think we've lost that. I think what we've given, we're giving people is, is blueprints uh, towards salvation when we need songs and poems and, and joyously complete uh, human invitations. Yeah, I think I, I, my sense has been, gosh, I think we probably hit bottom. You know, I always tell people the worst of the 60s was actually the 70s. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we probably hit bottom in the we probably hit bottom in the seventies, but certainly in the last couple of decades, there's, the general trend has been to um, towards a richer, more 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 uh, more densely expressive, more um, uh, ennobling form of worship in the church. That's been my experience. I mean, we still have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong, but the trend line is in a positive direction, I, at least as far as my travels. Well, the, I mean the new translation and the restoration of of the of some aspects of the liturgy in the most recent translation from about a decade ago that's helped. Yeah, I think the liturgy you know, of the mass uh, has improved. Uh, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen it. You know, I think decade by decade from the seventies, it's improved and it's uh, and it's it's re enriched. It's dared to be a little longer than the stripped down version of the seventy. I mean. The, the consecration took about 45 seconds, uh, you know, in the late 70s. And, and they put that back. But what they haven't recovered are good translations of the Psalms, often of the Gospels, uh, of the sacred music, of the hymns, uh, and uh, and even how they read them. I mean, I, I you know, when I was the, yes, the poet word in California, I went all over the state, all 58 counties, and I was going to mass everywhere and, and mumbling and, and, you know, sort of deadpan reading. Uh, there's no sense that this is language that is, that this is good news that should be, be heard as good news that should be heard at all. It's almost like, you know, at the well, end of, know, a, of, a, of a drug commercial where they go, they, they you know, they, they yeah. speed through all the legalese. <laughs> I, mean, I often hear the epistles, you know, read that way. You know, so I don't know. I'm, yeah. I, I, I remain a skeptic uh, about the complete uh, revival of, of sacred liturgy. Well, you know, Mammon has a negative role to play here. So when it comes to the economics of Bible translations, there's a, um, right, the New English Bible, which is what we use in Mass, was created, you know, it had to be different, right? You, you know, so um, my, my sense is, is that instead of gently adapting classic translations like the authorized version the tendency is to get the completely new ones and uh and and yeah there uh, there's a lot of a lot of pressure towards just banal language in this regard um 
Well, let's let's change gears here quickly. Does it make sense to speak of Christian poetry? Because the piece does develop that angle. I mean, there's the poetry of worship, but then there's also the poetry of those who write as Christians? Or how, how should we think about this notion of well, Christian I mean, poetry? I, I think in a very, very basic sense that, you know, you that there are three kinds of Christian poetry. There is, first of all, the, the, the poetry of Scripture. One-third of the Bible is written in verse. And in fact, there's lots of things in the New Testament which are not laid out as verse, but the the uh, in which the apostles are quoting early hymns and early poems. Uh, so, and so the sacred poetry of the Bible has a special category. The next category is what I would call devotional poetry. Uh, these are poems that are written to be used in services. This is the, you know the great hymns I talk about. You know the you know, mm-hmm. people like Isaac Watts and William Cooper, you know, who wrote these magnificent, you know, they're, you know, they're Protestant hymns, but I'm, I'm happy actually whenever I hear one <laughs> at mass because they're so much better than, yeah. than you know, than, than the Catholic hymns. Uh, and for Catholics, we have the great sequences, you know, which really in about the last 10 years, they've begun to reintroduce in the mass. They, they were pretty much, you know, yep. banished from the mass. They still, I've yet to hear Dies Irae again. You know, Dies Irae, Dies Ila, Solvet, Seclum in Favila, Teste David cum Sibila, Day of Wrath, that terrible day, when heaven and earth shall pass away, as Sibyl and the prophets say. Um, and so we have those that are are actually, were not never mandated, but were customarily included in the liturgy of, of the high feast days. And so we have this really very rich tradition. I mean, I grew up singing Thomas Aquinas' hymns, you know, especially the Tantum Ergo, uh, you know, which yes. have pretty much vanished, from, you know, from uh, from the benedictions that I, that I go to in California, uh, although I, I've, I've heard them in Washington. Um, the But then there's a third category, and this Although, you know, you can't say it's more important than scripture or more important than worship, but this is a third and necessary part of the Christian legacy, the Christian tradition, the living Christian culture. Uh, Because should we not speak and think as Christians after we leave the church doors? Now, many of us, you know, it would be easier if we didn't have to. Uh, But so, and this is where writers who are secular writers, uh, either write directly or indirectly about their their sense of the world, the sense of human existence from a Christian perspective. And we have, in the English language, perhaps the greatest tradition of, I don't know what you would call it, semi-sacred poetry. It's not quite secular poetry, but I call it Christian literary poetry. And it goes from the earliest... Well, you make that argument. It's, re- it's quite arresting in the uh, essay, I had never thought about it, but German and French poetry just don't have the same um, constant uh, backbeat, if you will, of 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 Christian poetry. Yeah, Fascinating. No, you know, Italian has it early on, but it loses it. Spanish is the only one uh, that comes close, but even Spanish has you know lost it in the modern era. So, and even our rebels. Uh, you know, have this deeply Christian perspective. And, you know, that's why I quote, you know, Blake. I mean, this is an interesting thing. Uh, if you believe 
the translators of the Bi the modern translators of the Bible. They say, Dana, it's so nice that you love poetry. It's so nice that uh, you brag about your wonderful poetic ear. But you know, people don't like this stuff. You know, they want you know language that dogs and cats can understand. And what I would say is that okay, what is the most popular poem in the English language? Now, this is through all these different polls where they, you know, that they, they do it. The most popular poem in the English language is consistently The Tiger by William Blake. This is a visionary poem in which, now, if Blake were writing it in, uh, in perfunctory prose, he would say, Tiger, uh, alpha predator of the world, uh, who uh, made your wonderful symmetrical design, uh, and did, was God proud of this? Instead, he says, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And, the very, and then he takes us into a blacksmith's shop where God is like pounding out, you know, the, the, you know that, and you go, what? This is completely irreverent. You know, God is a blacksmith, and he's you know, and the and the tiger's not made out of uh, out of iron. And he goes through there. He's using hammers and chains and anvils, and he creates the tiger. And this becomes, I think, uh, a kind of of way of saying that God didn't simply will the tiger into existence. Every detail of every aspect of creation reflects the the infinite power and care and artistry of God. And then uh, he, he finishes the tiger. And what happens? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Blake would have pronounced it symmetry. <laughs> so, and so suddenly the stars are throwing their weapons down, uh, and he's embodying these things. And it's this is a poem that people have been trying to explain for two hundred years. No one has ever offered a satisfactory and compact prose explanation of the tiger. And yet, this difficult, mysterious, uh, mystical poem is preferred above all other poems by readers of the English language, which says to me that maybe God was kind of smart in putting uh, verse in the Bible, putting verse in worship, which is to say, uh, certain things are drawn forth from our souls, our imaginations, our bodies, our minds, when we respond to poetry versus prose paraphrase. Uh, and that if we want to, if Christianity is a, a religion which can be summed up by saying, you know, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior versus saying, what a mysterious faith we share. I mean, <laughs> I was talking to Cynthia Haven. Uh, I, I believe you've published her in your pages, wonderful critic. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you know, the biographer of Rene Girard, and she said that when she became a Catholic, she couldn't understand why God wanted her. And I feel the same way. It's a, it's a mystery to me. 
how I even got mm. here. It's a mystery to me that God could have loved me. It's a, it's God's existence is a mystery. But when I walk out the door of my studio and I'm surrounded by the sky and the trees and the flowers, when I look at this, this jasmine that I planted that's covered with bees, uh, I feel the presence of the divine. I feel in the physicality and beauty of creation of which I am the most infinitesimal part. And it's those mysteries which compel us. It is those mysteries which sustain us. Uh, those, those mysteries which defy easy explanation which are at the core of our faith. And so, and poetry is the language either in scripture, in worship, or in literary life that allows us to, to in a sense, if not quite understand, at least uh, uh, draw near to the meaning of those mysteries. Hmm. Well, so, I, I don't thank know what you. it means when the stars throw down their spears and water heaven with their tears, but I, I do know what it means. It means that oh even well, I think I agree. Impressed by the beauty of the tiger, and that this animal yes, I, I, is nonetheless beautiful. Yeah. God made him so. Though the stars threw down their spears and water heaven with their tears, it's just. That's Blake, what is he really saying? But he's saying, in some sense, he's saying far more than one could say otherwise in, yeah. in ordinary direct language. And it's the more that is what draws us, draws our imagination beyond the mundane, it seems yeah. to me. And the rhymes and the meter um, make it stick in our head so it becomes an object of internal meditation. I mean, how do you, what do you do with mysteries? You internalize them and dwell on them because the, the mm. meditation on them expands your understanding of the divine. Well, you've got Tiger, Tiger as uh, the tiger as the most beloved poem in the English language. I mean, do you have, what, what can you leave as we wrap up? What could you leave our listeners with as for you? What, what's your go-to piece of verse? Do you have a favorite? Or? Yeah, I have, uh, you know, I love my favorite poet, it may be Robert Frost. And so, uh, mm. now Frost is a, a very cagey agnostic, but he does tend to see the world in kind of foundational Christian terms. So let me leave with this very short poem. Your readers will all know it. Uh, Nature called Nothing Gold Can Stay, which looks on that moment in spring where the leaves begin as flowers. And so he gives this image of a golden age, which brings Frost to a notion of Adam and Eve in paradise, but then to the fallen state of man. Uh, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so... Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. And mm. that's a poem which reminds me of why we all need redemption. And we all need beautiful language. Well, thank you so much for your piece and, uh, and for your contribution to our 
our stock of, uh, of poetic language. So thank you very much. Well, Rusty, thank you for having a magazine that would publish it. <laughs> this feels that these <laughs> things are important. So I'm in your oh, this First Things exists to publish this kind of essay, it seems to me. And I hope listeners, if you're not a subscriber now, you should become one because it's really a unique, a unique uh, magazine. Great intellectual rigor, but we're open and we're, we insist upon the mystery of uh, the things that transcend reason. 